Namo tata bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa namo tata bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa namo tata bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Aparuta de Sangamatasa Taura is So this is the uh, Magapuja. And this is uh, one of the main uh, festival days in the Theravada tradition uh, when 1,250 arahants assembled spontaneously. Uh, all came from different directions to uh, pay respect to the Buddha, in which he gave the Owara Patimokha. And so that, this is the, the uh, story behind this celebration. And then the Owada Parimoka is, um, I'll read it to you. So, so this is what the Buddha would recite, teaching he gave to 1,250 arahants. Let's see if you can understand it. Patience and endurance are supreme practices for burning up evil, all those who have known say that Nibbāna is the supreme Dhamma. Those who kill or harm others cannot be called those ordained ones who have become calm. The not doing of all evils, the doing of what is good, the cleansing of one's heart, these are the teachings of all the Buddhas. The not speaking of evil, not speaking evil, not hurting, being restrained according to the patimoka, knowing what is sufficient in taking food, having a secluded place for sleeping and sitting, making efforts to practice uh, in the pure heart. These are the teachings of all the Buddhas. So this is a brief exhortation, which is... Uh, Simple, simple enough teaching, do good, refrain from doing evil, and purify the mind. <laughs> so, the doing good and refraining from doing evil, this is our sila, like the Parimokha pre, precepts, uh, ten precepts, the uh, eight precepts, is, all these are conventional forms of uh, agreement to restrain ourselves from acting on um, in ways that are harmful to ourselves and to others. So it's like respecting life, not intentionally harming, uh, telling the truth, um, being responsible for your behavior, all these kind of uh, th things that we are brought up with, whether you're Buddhist or not, usually we're 
advised not to tell lies and be honest and they, they have some sense of responsibility for how we behave, not to speak evil or say malicious, unkind things, spread gossip and so forth. And to purify. And uh, this is, I've always contemplated uh, this sense of purification because part of a religion, not just uh, Buddhism. And so it's, it's a rather uh, high-minded word to what, it, what, do we, uh, but what do we mean by what is pure? What is purity? And so this is like self-inquiry when we're talking about the pure heart, the unshakable heart, um, the pure mind. Purity always conveys this as if it's unblemished, it's unstained, it's complete and whole. And yet we can think of it in terms of, of uh, like being uh, you know, in a personal way of, can you, can you ever really feel pure as a person? Can you, do you ever f really feel that you're pure as a person? I'm asking you the question. <clears throat> well, tell truth, I never can feel pure as a person. But through meditation, through investigation, through reflection, through looking into the nature of things, then the purity of this moment is the consciousness, this consciousness that we're all experiencing. It's all pure consciousness. This is a reflection, not a doctrinal statement. And then we project ourselves into consciousness. So then, of course, we... Uh, that the self is based on delusion, on uh, ignorance, not understanding the Four Noble Truths, uh, through attachment to conditions, through desire. So this, uh, when, we, when we are not awake, not aware, not mindful, then we, then we live our lives through our personalities, through our prejudices, our biases, our cultural attitudes, our uh, assumptions, through our feelings and emotions. So that's why uh, society is the way it is, because most people are, don't recognize their true the purity that they always have, but they're always projecting into consciousness this sense of I am this body, I am this person, I am good, bad, right, wrong, lovable, not lovable, beautiful, ugly, and on and on like this. <clears throat> then we, we develop habits uh, of seeing ourselves, projecting ourselves, creating ourselves endlessly through our attachments, to our desires, our memories, and there's no purity in that. In that we can't, we can never feel pure just through being good, or obeying all the rules, or not doing bad, because 
even though on the sila level we can find maybe more happiness and a sense of uh, self-respect through doing good and refraining from doing bad. Still, if this basic delusion of a self is the is the underlying uh, condition that we operate from, then after how many lifetimes, eighty-four thousand lifetimes, are you still you're still operating from the same delusion, and the result will always be the same. You'll have to come back again and go through it all over again to eventually get the points. Now the point is very clearly stated in uh, Buddhist teaching of mindfulness, uh, awakened consciousness. When we, like I just gave the refuges, Bhutang Sarnangachami, Namang Sarnangachami, Sankang Sarnangachami, so that means taking refuge in awareness, in truth, and in um, within this human form, uh, the development, cultivation of this path of awareness. So it's not personal. When you take refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha, you're transcending your personal, your personality or your cultural identities or whatever, the conditioned realm. So then we, uh, in, with Buddha Dhamma Sangha, then we, we reflect from there with mindfulness and wisdom the way things are. So all conditions are impermanent, all Dhamma is not self. So it, it, it really resolves itself in very simple teaching of just awakened attention in the present. So simple, and yet, and yet we can make it incredibly complicated um, because we, we always come from this basic delusion of a self. If you'd never challenge that sense of self or investigate it, then no matter how good you are, you'll always be deluding yourself in some way. Uh, and you'll never, you'll never be liberated, even with just being good and not doing bad. It's through understanding in this way of Dhamma, seeing things, seeing the way it is, rather than uh, always be caught in the conditioned realm. Good and bad are always about the, the qualities of conditioned phenomena. When you have phenomena, then you have good, bad, right, wrong, beautiful, ugly, desirable, undesirable, true and false. So notice that this is a dualistic, divisive creation of the mind through thinking, through attachment to the discriminating ability we have through uh, seeing things in terms of their qualities. This is bigger than that. This is better, worse, male or female, right or wrong. Then, then with all these things, all these various conditions have their own particular uh, emotional reactions. So we have, if it's beautiful, then we 
we like it, we want it. If it's ugly, we don't like it. We want to get rid of it. We have cultural biases, cultural assumptions, racial identities, uh, ethnic biases, religious biases. These are all uh, acquired knowledge that we get after we're born. So uh, we're not born being a man or a woman or a Buddhist or Christian or a good person or a bad person. These are, these are attitudes, assumptions, perceptions that we acquire after birth. So what was your original face before you were born? As the Zen koan goes. <laughs> and so the, the, this is the awakened consciousness. Uh, all of us are experiencing consciousness equally at this moment. That we're all experiencing consciousness through the form of the body. So for right now, speaking for myself, consciousness, I'm experiencing consciousness from here. Because uh, the, the body is a conscious form. And because of that, because of birth into a human body that is conscious, then I have to experience life from this position, from the way this body is, its various uh, uh, qualities of good health or bad health, youth, uh, old age, sickness, and its in, in, inevitable death. And wherever it is, like I just came from Thailand, this body last week, it, this time was on an airplane probably over Kazakhstan or something. <laughs> and uh, sitting for, in first class uh, area of the Thai International Airline, very nice. Drinking orange juice, 30,000 feet above Kazakhstan. So that is <laughs> experiencing consciousness from there. But that was all um, sanya or memory, isn't it? Because when you're sitting in, a, in an airplane, you're, you know, you, you have these uh, little um, like TV screens in front of you where you, you have the, uh, the flight path where you can see your, where your airplane is at this given moment. And so you're looking at this little TV screen uh, and you see this kind of form of kind of an outline of an airplane as it crosses over, see from Bangkok, crosses over to India and Afghanistan and to uh, Kazakhstan, Russia and uh, all the way to uh, London. And yet, you know, whether, uh, you know, this is, I just take for granted that this is what's happening because I didn't manage to get from Bangkok to London. But this can be seen in strictly personal terms and conventional terms, social terms, scientific terms. But all terms are conditions of the mind. That's not the purity of consciousness, it's conditioned. And a condition in this sense is something that is born and dies, begins and ends. So the body being the the main condition we have to live with for a lifetime 
it was born and it will die. And so we all know that. That's, that's uh, common knowledge. But we live in a way that we, we uh, you know, we, we don't really know that. We know that uh, as a perception, but the reality of it uh, doesn't really uh, come to us unless we investigate. Because we can live in the, in the realm of ignorance for lifetimes. I don't know how many lifetimes I've been living in the realm of ignorance. And I don't particularly care or worry about it, but this lifetime is the opportunity for awakening. And that's the whole point of this teaching, is awakened awareness, consciousness, knowing for yourself, but not for yourself as a person. This kind of knowing uh, is not like acquired knowledge that you get from reading the scriptures. But it's, a, it's, a, it's the knowing that is natural to us, that is non-personal. It's not acquired knowledge, it's recognition, it's understanding. These are the, the words I find most uh, useful for explaining this recognizing, realizing, knowing the real from the unreal, knowing the condition and the unconditioned. So this is, a, this is what, this is the uh, emphasis in uh, Buddhist practice is this discerning wisdom, ability that a human individual has to discern the condition as a condition. So during this winter's retreat, this is the emphasis on this discerning a condition as a condition. Whether it's a personal view, an emotion, whether it's good or bad, right or wrong, uh, true or false, it's a coarse, a heavy material, or refined and subtle, it's emotional, whatever its quality might be. Conditions have qualities, so that's and that's that's what we why we think we we uh, project qualities onto uh, the sense of a self, a body, um, the things that we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, think, feel. But then when we cultivate awareness, then this awareness is not something that is not a condition. It's not another condition that knows another condition. Uh, and one condition doesn't know another condition. But this knowing of conditioned phenomena is the unconditioned. So, I mean, this probably baffles most of you when I talk like this. <laughs> because I'm using a a language that is is quite uh, incomprehensible to the thinking mind. This ha you have to discover and recognize for yourself. You try to figure out nibbana and the unconditioned and anatta and emptiness uh, with the with your thinking mind. What happens? 
you just get more confused trying to, to figure it all out. So that's where this mindfulness is not about thinking or acquiring knowledge from external sources, but awakening. When we contemplate the nature of conditioned phenomena, it's, it's the three characteristics we use, anicca dukkha anatta. And this can be very perfunctory, and all the talk about vipassana and developing of insight and all that. We, you know, we, this emphasis on all conditions are impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not self, anicca dukkha anatta. But in a lot of, in so much of what passes as vipassana is not, is not discerning, it's merely projecting these, these kind of, of words onto experience. So when you try to think about no self, or when you try to think that all conditions are unsatisfactory or are dukkha or suffering, we end up with some kind of negative feeling. If there's no self, what's the purpose of even practicing? You know, as a person, and, and if there's no person, then who's practicing? Why, why take the precepts? Why ordain as a monk or a nun? Why, it doesn't matter whether you do good or bad, just follow whatever you, the mood of the moment. Uh, it's all conditioned phenomena. So the logic uh, that comes through through these, uh, trying to think about anicca dukkanata or nibbana or emptiness, usually takes us to a, a kind of annihilation or a kind of depression or a nihilism. And yet something in us longs for something like an ultimate truth, like a belief in an in ultimate cause, a creator God, a, a heavenly father, uh, uh, eternal happiness. Uh, in in religion, most religions, there's there's this reference always to eternal happiness forever and ever with our Creator or with God or the Holy Spirit. Or so, so there's this other side uh, of uh, thinking of using words in terms of what they call eternalism. So we, we long for that ultimate truth, that joyous happiness, that wonderful bliss that we can only experience through uh, finding God or having some kind of mystical experience that we might have heard about or we might even have experienced it sometime. But this is still the dualistic thinking process. And the, the emphasis on mindfulness can seem rather boring. Because what is mindfulness? When you use the word, what, what is it? it uh, and then there's various theories, various definitions. But whatever, however they define mindfulness, or sati sampachanya in the Pali dictionaries, or uh, English uh, definitions, that's not it. 
consciousness is not something you need to go to the library to study. It's, it's what you're experiencing right now. It's the reality of now. Uh, the consciousness is now. Mindfulness then is the, is the recognition of consciousness now. The, this ability to awaken, to open, to observe. To be the puto or the knowing, the transcendent knowing of Dhamma or reality. The transcendent, it's transcending, it's not, it doesn't mean it's, it's kind of higher than knowing about Buddhism. Not, it's not about higher or lower, because these are words, and higher and lower are about conditioned phenomena. So when in the, they define Nibbana as the highest happiness, that's not quite right either, is it? Not, is it higher than ordinary happiness? Uh, and then we get our intellects into a twist trying to figure out Nibbana as some kind of, you know, there's happiness and then there's maybe a higher happiness and Nibbana is the highest happiness. And then we can think maybe there's a higher happiness than the highest happiness. Where do you go? How do, where does that ever end? In just the endless proliferation of thinking with terms. So mindfulness is not about thinking. It's not a rejection of thinking, but it's non-attachment. It's a natural non-state of being, if that makes sense. It's not even a state. It, you don't, you can't make yourself mindful. I hear people say, well, I've got to be more mindful. <clears throat> I've got to cultivate mindfulness. That's, that's a conventional way of talking, but it actually is quite misleading that I'm somebody who's not mindful and, got, and must practice more mindfulness in order to become increasingly more mindful. You see what I mean? It's the, the way the thinking mind connects, one proliferating thought to another, goes on and on and on and on. And those of you who have practiced meditation, you know, get tangled up in your, and confused with your thinking process. Because there's so many, so much information about Buddhism uh, everywhere, in, in bookshops, in internet, in websites. There's uh, all kinds of things available now to discuss uh, Buddhism and Dhamma, endless Dhamma discussions on what do they call these blogs or whatever, where you can, you know, communicate all over the all over the planet and find somebody to discuss your views about Buddhism or Dhamma. But the, but the simplicity of it is awakened attention in the moment. Here and now, the timeless. When we talk about time and timelessness, its ability to discern time from t the timeless. The timeless 
that's mindfulness. And time is your own thoughts and emotions. Your body is about time, isn't it? These bodies are born, so they die. So they, they acquire years and they get older and older and then die. That's a time, that's time. So then you inquire, am I really this body? Is this body really what I am? And then culturally, of course, uh, one thinks it is. I am, this is my body. And uh, on a conventional level, everybody uh, would never contest that. Say, of course, we each have our own body, our own space. We talk about my space, my process, my feelings, my desires, my problems, me and mine, endless me and mine, uh, the way we even relate to Buddhist monasticism, always in terms of me and mine, or Buddhism in terms of me and mine. When we think we're Theravadan Buddhists, and then we, then we form a I'm a Theravadan Buddhist. I'm not a Mahayana Buddhist. This is still thinking, isn't it? And there's still this sense of I am this and I'm not that. Now that which is aware of thinking, now this I encourage to really investigate thinking. Listen to yourself thinking. And I've said this over and over and sometimes I wonder with some of you whether you actually listen to your thoughts or you just think and follow your thinking. I really wonder after years how you still create yourselves and believe your own creations. After I've been teaching this for many, many years. So I'm scolding you now because I'm fed up, actually, uh, because you're not getting the point. Uh, in seeing and, uh, you know, listening to one's own thoughts. I can do it, so I assume you can. Maybe, maybe you can. <laughs> but this, uh, you know, I can, I, I know what I'm thinking. I know what I'm feeling. There's a knowing beyond the feeling, beyond the thought. So if I'm feeling happy or sad or uh, inspired or depressed or whatever, there's a knowing of it. Because we say, I feel so, uh, I, you know, I feel uh, cold because we have so much snow. Or I feel depressed because I haven't seen the sun. Or I feel, uh, and so that we, but we believe these thoughts. We believe the moods of the moment. We're committed to it. We, we attach or we, we try to suppress. Maybe we feel we should be happy and uh, we should be positive and all kinds of idealistic uh, things, you know, concepts of how we should be. So we may suppress our fear or disappointment or 
depression by trying to put on a good face in order to, to you know, live a life where we, we constantly have to, to try to be something that we're not or we're trying to always control our emotions or our feelings. And then when we lose control and we feel guilty or like a failure or uh, we feel despair, hopeless. But there's also a knowing of this that's beyond the actual emotion or the actual memory or the actual thought. Like thoughts can be rather neutral, one can be very objective about certain things, but then um, emotional experience comes into it. And then the thoughts, you know, uh, certain thoughts, certain tone, a tone of voice, a certain perception, a memory, something will come and we can feel a strong emotion. So this is, you know, to, to see in the, with the reflection on the eight worldly dhammas, that when somebody praises you, what do you feel like? Or when somebody criticizes you, what do you feel like? You know, it's like, this is where we, we observe. It's not to say we shouldn't be, we shouldn't feel anything. Praise and blame, praise and criticism, we should just be kind of totally indifferent to the eight worldly dhammas because that's another delusion being indifferent to praise, blame, happiness, and suffering. <clears throat> but what we can do is be aware of, of somebody, of, of praise, I feel like this, blame, criticism, I feel like this. There's this feeling like this. It's, and, and that feeling, of course, arises according. If, if I feel if, if uh, somebody praises me, it is not the same feeling that I have when somebody blames me. So, it's, uh, one is happy and the other is angry, usually. So, but there's a knowing of this, knowing happiness and anger. And then seeing it in terms of what it really is, all conditions are impermanent praise and blame, and the, and the emotional reaction of being happy or angry is impermanent. There's this, this continuous ability to know, sustained knowing, from this way of awareness, mindfulness. It's clear, it's precise, it's not confused emotion anymore. It's not about how things should or shouldn't be, or what I like or don't like. So you see the simplicity uh, of taking this refuge of puto tamo sanko. Buto is uh, knowing. Intuitive knowing. It's not knowing about Buddha or about refuges or about Theravada Buddhism, or Abhidhamma, or scriptures. It's not, that's knowing about. If you read 
the Tripitaka, then you might know a lot about the suttas or the Abhidhamma or the Vinaya. And so many books are written by people who know all about, who studied and researched the scriptures, but may not know, have a clue about the Dhamma. And then, then uh, did Buddha teach Buddhism or did Buddha teach Dhamma? Did Buddha teach Theravada Buddhism? I don't think that's, that's a reference in the scripture, Theravada Buddhism. <laughs> and uh, uh, Buddha was pointing to Dhamma or the way it is, not to Buddhism. So Buddhism is an English uh, translation of, uh, you know, of Buddha Sasana. Uh, and we, in, well, that's the Pali form, but, the, but then we see it in terms of Mahayana, Theravada, Vajrayana, Zen Buddhism, modern Buddhism, ancient Buddhism, Indian, Sri Lankan, Thai, Tibetan, and so forth, Buddhism. Now this is, these are just conventional ways of speaking, but this is not Dhamma, this is not the way it is. What we can know, what's common to all, to Tibetan Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism, Zen Buddhism, uh, Sri Lankan Buddhism, is that these are conditions that arise and cease in consciousness. That makes it much more simple, doesn't it, than having to know all about these different, you know, learn Chinese, Tibetan, Singala, Thai, to test out all the, you know, what exactly did the Buddha teach is uh, you, you want a perfect translation, perfect equivalent for every Pali word and have the perfect English equivalent uh, because we're so attached to words. But the, the shortcut is to observe the nature of word. A word is is a condition. The word Buddha is a condition. But now we're using the word as to, to remember the here and now. Buddha, Puto, here and now. Rather than Buddha, oh yes, he was that sage born 2,552 years ago uh, in uh, India, then we then we know might know all about uh, the history of Buddhism, as it's recorded in uh, Sanskrit or Pali. But when we when we uh, are cultivating awareness, mindfulness, all conditions are impermanent. The pesankarani cha. That means everything. Everything you think, the whole world around us, everything you hear, smell, taste, touch, every emotion of love and hate, elation and depression, boredom, indifference, whatever, however severe, however extreme uh, the emotion is, it's still a condition. 
And it's knowing the condition as the condition, discerning. It's not judging the condition anymore. It's not getting caught up with criticizing or evaluating or judging the conditions, but discerning a condition is a condition. Now if you <clears throat> pursue this practice determinedly, then eventually it begins to really, um, you know, it has its profound effect because you know this from a deeper level and just knowing the theory, Buddhist theories, Buddhist ideas, uh, what Ajahn Sumedho teaches and what Ajahn Chah teaches and all that kind of thing, or all about Theravada and Mahayana and so forth. You know this is knowing a Bhutto, knowing Dhamma, the way it is. So, translating the word Dhamma as the truth of the way it is, you want to know, I used to want to know, well, what, what way is it? And then we've got to believe that all conditions are impermanent. That's what Buddhists do. We believe that all conditions are impermanent. That's not it, is it? We don't believe because we can observe that. So using Sapa Sankarani Cha, all conditions are impermanent, is a reminder not to, to act and live our lives as if conditions are impermanent. As if conditions are permanent. I am actually Ajahn Sumedho all the time. My feelings, my views, my uh, opinions about life are terribly important. And, um, you know, I'm living this life in order to become. I'm practicing meditation because I hope that I will become a pure arahant in the, before I die. Uh, and on and on like this, one can, can be very altruistic or maybe modest. Maybe in England it isn't, it isn't appropriate to, uh, to kind of use hyperbole in a, in a boasting way, like I'm going to become an arahant. And saying, well, I, I'll try my hardest to be a better person, to be modest to be humble. So we can, we can grasp the idea of modesty and humility as from the ego level. But when we take the going forth, the bapacha and the upasampada, this is about, you know, the whole aim is to realize the deathless, the reality. The realize the deathless is, is awakening to reality. Because the deathless doesn't have a beginning or end. If it's death, it has the, it means the end of something that began, something that was born. So the deathless can only be recognized, and that is the, this awareness here and now. Timeless, akalika dhamma, timelessness. Here and now, they only when you think about that, then you, then you're back into time again. You just go around in circles, forming maybe abstract philosoph philosophies about the nature of time or timelessness. 
But can you really imagine timelessness or deathlessness? Can you form an image? You know, can you create a form uh, that's timeless and deathless? I can't. There's no form, no quality to it. So because the thinking process is limited to that, it's about conditioned phenomena. Thoughts themselves are conditioned. But that which is aware of thought is not conditioned. And in, then in, through awareness we began to, to recognize the condition as the condition. Now, in, you know, I mean, pointing to very simple ways to do this, and um, there's consciousness and space. So we have uh, the uh, earth, fire, water, and air, the four elements, and then we have space and consciousness. Now notice space and, con uh, space and consciousness have no boundary. And yet they're here and now. There's space, and it's visually in that we can look at the space, or consciousness. Now sound of silence is uh, the reference to this sound of silence that I use, because I've developed this practice around this, this kind of background vibratory, is it a sound or vibration? Well, I don't know what it is. They're certainly recognizable. And uh, it's, I'm fully conscious. Consciousness and this sound of silence then go together. For practical purposes, this is not doctrinal statement. So, in this state of awareness, then the, the earth, fire, water, and air elements can be seen in perspective. All that arises ceases. All conditions are impermanent. The Pethankarani Cha. Whether it's a solid, liquid, air, fire elements, whether it's refined or coarse, subtle, um, whether it's, it's short or long or whatever the quality of a condition is. Because once you establish this sense of awareness, it's the, the sound of silence really helps you to, to rest in a state long enough to get perspective on the conditions, on your own thoughts and emotions. But to do this, you have to be quite determined to, to, um, to do it, to keep at it till, till you have this breakthrough. And that doesn't mean just sitting for hours on a zafu. It means like using every situation, whenever, whatever you're experiencing now, you know, whether you're happy or sad or whatever your state of mind is, it, 
What is it? You know, just be aware it's like this. It's not saying how you should feel at this time. I can't tell you how you should feel at this moment, but you can certainly be aware of what you're feeling, emotionally experiencing at this very moment. That's awareness. The feeling is the object. So the feeling is sankara because it's always changing. You're not going to feel the same. Feelings, emotions are very fleeting. They, they arise and cease. The, one can have emotional, one can, you know, have, be elated and the next moment depressed. Emotions are like that. You know, whether somebody's praising you or condemning you, you can be happy or miserable accordingly. Just in, in, a, in a moment. But the awareness of being elated or depressed, that's timeless. But we'd, we're so influenced, so habituated, so addicted to these, to these extremities, to our feelings, to our uh, sense of our self-importance, our ideals, our principles, that we, we, uh, we never get any perspective. We're always operating from views, opinions, biases, prejudices, delusions. So when we think of 1,250 arahants assembling, we, we can even create this idea of an arahant as being some you know, you know, some kind of rare human being, maybe back in India 2,552 years ago, people were much purer than they are now. I mean, look at our society now. Uh, it's uh, how, you know, we can, we can become very critical of modern society. Materialism is disgusting and, and the, the uh, political uh, problems of the time, economic problems, the, the way we've deluded ourselves with our uh, desires for material gain. The banks are failing, economies are crashing. And, but at Buddhist time, maybe it, we, we think of 2000, India 2,552 years ago, probably was the golden age. But we don't know, do we? <laughs> I mean, there are various opinions, but 1,250 arahants assembled on Magha Puja Day. Not because it was part of uh, the Buddhist, uh, Theravada Buddhist tradition, it was uh, spontaneous. Now we can question that, whether that's just legend, myth, history, or reality, or hyperbole. All religions tend towards exaggerating, proclaiming, and all kinds of ways that religious jargon, religious language operates. They all sound like we're, we're the only really good one. Every religion always operates, even the ones that are tolerant say, we're, you know, we're much better than the rest because we're more tolerant. <clears throat> So, you know, we, 
these are the function, this is conditioned phenomena, isn't it? What can you do with it? It's stuck in that realm of dualism. Is Theravada Buddhism better than Mahayana Buddhism? Well, a lot of, to a lot of Theravada Buddhists it is. It's the pure, the original. Then, Thera, then Mahayanas say, no, we're the higher, more advanced. We're Maha, we're not Hina. Hinayana means, you know, kind of minor vehicle, nothing. And Maha means, you know, the, the great one. So this is, these are dualistic terminologies. Do we have to know which one is the best? On the ego level, maybe that's where we are. We want to, if I'm going to be a Buddhist, I want the best one. I want to have, you know, the higher, the, uh, the true one, the pure form, the original. And when we, this, these are just words, concepts that we grasp from the ego level from the sense of, I want the best, or the pure. So when we're cultivating awareness, this cultivating is, is what pawana really is. It's, it's reminding ourselves. So mindfulness is like remembering, or re not remembering a, like something that happened uh, a year ago or yesterday, but it's remembering here and now, puto, remember just using the mantra puto as a way of, of uh, helping yourself to remember here and now, wake up. Sound of silence, puto. And then resting in that state of a, recognizing it and worshiping it. You know, like puto is like this. So it's not just a kind of lazy puto, you know, so what, sound of silence, buzz in your ear, so what, I'm, I want to get high, I want to be blissed out of my mind with samadhi, is another desire again, isn't it? Wanting the best, the highest. Not wanting life to be the way it is, like, Puto means that we accept whatever is the way it is right now. It doesn't mean it's what we want or that it's what should be, but it's like this. So physically, you know, it's like this. Emotionally, it's like this. And this awareness then, it's, it sustains itself. I don't create it. It's not something that Ajahn Sumato is an expert at you know, being mindful. If I start claiming it on that, in that way, you don't, you know, you know I'm off the track. If I start saying I'm more mindful than you are, you, you know I'm, I've lost the plot. <laughs> I'm not practicing what I'm preaching. But the, but this mindfulness then is not, you can't own it, you can only be this. Being aware, then pure consciousness operates with wisdom and discernment. And this is what the Buddha realized uh, when he, you know, when we talk about the Buddha's enlightenment. This is what Gotama, the ascetic Gotama, recognized, realized, why we call 
at the Buddha. It's no longer Prince Siddhartha. It's no longer the ascetic Gautama. It's no longer anybody, anything, Ajahn Chah or Buddhadasa or Dalai Lama or anything. It's this. Puto, Tamo, Sankho are the simplified words for reflection, for remembering. So Sati, uh, the Pali word Sati uh, is a way of remembering the present moment. It's like reminding yourself here and now, or using your breath, the anapanasati, to if you're trying to develop anapanasati to get some kind of samadhi, or observing using the breath as a as a way of bringing your attention to what's happening here and now. It's like this, or the the body, the way it is now. The the body's here and now sitting like this, breathing like this, feeling like this. But these are conditions like breathing, feeling, sitting. But consciousness has no boundary. It's not a condition that has boundaries. It's not a condition. So in Thai, they often use the word jitta for consciousness. So in uh, Lumpur Cha used to always say, you know, the, in Thai they say, watch your jitta, do jit. Do is like observe, observe your consciousness, do jit. This was, this was uh, you know, what I, the phlegm of the first Thai I learned was about do jit, or observe your mind, observe your consciousness. Well, you can't observe consciousness, because, but you, you can observe the state of mind you're in. You know, the sad feeling, happy feeling. Because you are consciousness. This is, consciousness is not, does, isn't something that you observe, it's something you recognize. So this do-jit practice is, is recognizing consciousness is like this. And then the self, the ego, is like this. You know, it arises, ceases, and so me as being Ajahn Sumedho arises and ceases, uh, feeling happy or sad or whatever rise, comes and goes according to other conditions. It's uh, just the way it is. All conditions are impermanent. All dhamma sape tama anatta, not self, anatta. There's no self. Because a self is a condition. In the way that we talk in, in the Pali, Pali Buddhism. Now this, te this is pointing very directly, and uh, it's um, you know this is this is all it amounts to. 
uh, not to make problems about life, but to, you know, not think that I have to have something in order to, something better than what I have now. Or I've got to <clears throat> change something because I don't particularly like the way it is. But it's observing that. So in uh, Life of a Samana, it's, uh, you know, we, we live at a, a level of, of uh, four requisites and Dhamma Vinaya. So this is, this is our, this is all we need for this practice. This is, this is it. You don't need anything more than this. This is, this is complete. It, it's a matter, it's up to you to use it. Or if you want to use it for the wrong things, <laughs> whether you use it for liberation or for enslavement or for making yourself always discontented or unhappy. So listening to the thinking mind, uh, you learn a lot. It's like listening to, you know, these corny soap operas and that you're going to, you know, you can hear yourself complaining, wanting something you don't have, not wanting things to be the way they are, uh, worrying about the future, feeling offended, your feelings hurt, heartbroken, disappointment, betrayed, longing is another one, longing for something you don't have, hoping, all these are, you know, can be recognized as conditions arising, ceasing. It's not, it's not, it's not a put down of conditioned phenomena, it's recognizing, it's discerning it. So conditioned phenomena is the way it is. Some of it's lovely, high-minded, beautiful. Some of it is coarse and ugly, nasty. So mo most of it is neither one extreme or the other. A lot of a lot of our life is just plain boring. You know, just perfunctory. Getting up in the morning, brushing your teeth walking from here to there. <laughs> Most of our life is just, you know, putting on your robes and taking them off and taking a bath and eating your food, things like this. None of it is, you know, so ordinary uh, that on a retreat we can really get greedy to have a, a heavenly experience. Now, we don't want to spend, you know, three months uh, meditating and just end up with just the being mindful while we're brushing our teeth. We want to really cultivate samadhi so we can have some kind of super duper high-minded experience and breakthrough that we conceive before we, when we don't even know what we're talking about. Or maybe you've had experiences in the past, you know, of, of great samadhi and great bliss, and then you long for it again. So be careful of that, wanting something because you remember, or wanting something that you, 
you don't know yet because you've never experienced it, but you long for it or hope for it. So these are, these are all observable when you observe your thinking process, making it fully conscious. I want something I long for. And this world we live in now is going through quite a, it seems to be a very difficult time. And so there's, you know, everywhere, it's not, you know, not just here, but it, everywhere is uh, so many problems in every, in every way. Because the conditions phenomena is, is obviously on a kind of more international scale or global scale, something's happening. So it's even more important to, to you know, to see the, 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 the liberation that comes through awareness rather than worrying about the future of the planet or the future of yourself or the Sangha or anything else, but uh, developing that uh, accuracy of discernment so that you find your strength in stability, in stillness rather than in uh, just being caught in the, in the uh, whirling vortex of changing conditions. Now this is something that is uh, available to us all, you know, as human beings. It's not, if you think you can't do it, then observe that. You know, if you think you're not good enough or not pure enough, observe that. You know, it's not about having to come to a point where I think I'm really pure, then I can find purity. Sometimes those that really think they're pure don't know what purity is. It can be another form of conceit. So, so I found it much more useful to recognize purity as the true nature of consciousness. And that is recognized through awareness, through sati sampatanya. That's the gate to the deathless, the, 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 the door or the entrance. That's the only possi possible entrance that we have in this form as human beings, is through awareness. Because through extremity of conditions, they're, they're very fleeting, you know, they, haven't, they can't sustain themselves. They reach peaks and then, then you lose them. But this is self-sustaining, it's not me sustaining it anymore. It's recognizing and trusting. It's about surrender. It's about relinquishing, letting go, not about gaining, acquiring. You see, so even sometimes the way the scriptures are interpreted are all about achieving Nibbana, attaining enlightenment, uh, you know, attaining stream entry, just recognize that that is not a skillful way for most of us to use those kind of words. Attainment, achievement, successful meditations. Because in my background, that means, that throws me right back into the, old, into the American mindset. You know, goal-oriented, 
winner. And then feeling, you know, if I don't get what I want, I'm a failure. So it just feeds the sakyaditi, the ego, all the time. So I found the, you know, the words like letting go, relinquishing. The sum of our life is not an attainment, it's about relinquishing. Letting go, surrendering. And that when you, when you begin to appreciate that way of thinking, surrendering, not from the ego, I've got to surrender, uh, and that, then it becomes a, a kind of tyranny. You can make it into a, an act of tyranny for yourself. But it's like surrendering or letting go or relaxing, putting down the burden of life, Putting down, you know, everything, this heavy thing that we carry, the self, the ego is a heavy burden. To be somebody is, is a burden. To always assert yourself as a separate personality is, is a heavy, burdensome way to live one's life. But once you see that you don't have to do that, then you let go. You're not trying to eradicate your personality. But you're no longer operating from the delusions of Sakya Ditti, Silabhatabharamasa, Vichikicha. So that sense of non-attachment, Nibbana. Nibbana really means non-attachment to conditioned phenomena. It doesn't mean annihilating samsara. It's not like destroying anything. It's just not attaching. We, we, uh, you know, we all have to live our lives to the death of these bodies with these conditions, the way they are. You know, and they don't get better as you get older. You have to learn to live with aging, with, <laughs> with uh, feebleness. My vision isn't very good anymore. I have clean intestines because I did a detox. Probably cleaner than yours. But uh, <laughs> that's one of my ego hang-ups. <laughs> but let's think of having to support it principles and high standards. How many of you have, are very idealistic and with high principles and high standards? And how burdensome that is to be attached to even beautiful high standards and high principles. It doesn't mean that you, you, you don't have standards or principles, but it's the attachment, the illusion, the delusion that leads to attachment. And so it's not about, you know, saying all conditions are bad because they're impermanent and suffering. It's not making a, that's a value judgment, isn't it? All conditioned phenomena, all sankaras are bad because they, they make you suffer. No, some are good and some are beautiful and happy and subtle and all, that, all the best conditions go from the best to the worst. But ignorance and attachment to those conditions, 
always is this sense of doom, of frustration, of worry, anxiety, fear. All these result from this even attachment to the highest standards and the most uh, um, high-minded principles. So there's a encouragement to to learn to trust this awareness, recognize it. And this is what I've done. I've recognized, spent years cultivating this, so it it expands. You know, so where it's, it's the ability to sustain this awareness and appreciate it and be grateful and and it's for this ability to to just rest in this awareness where then I can see you know all the things that happen to me my vipaka karma as I get older things uh, you know people ordain people disrobe I get what I want I don't get what I want things change for the better change for the worse it's all part of it it doesn't mean that I'm getting out of old age, sickness, death, or, or you know, I'm just totally indifferent to life, so some monk or nun disrobes, fine, I don't feel anything. It isn't like that. It's not like you become insensitive, but you're no longer a slave to sensitivity. So you're no longer creating suffering around the changing conditions of sickness, disease, old age, loss, separation from the loved, having to be with the unloved, and on and on like this. One, this is, this is life. Life is like this. Soka parite, soka parite upayasa. I mean, this is not, you know, this is, the conditioned realm is, is, is a realm where we experience sorrow, grief, despair, anguish, worry. But what we learn from that, you know, we, we observe that which is observing of grief, grief and sorrow, despair, is not that. And the more you keep reminding yourself, my refuge, the refuge is in Puto, not in despair or in grief and then to be the be this observer of grief is like this you can feel it you know it's not something you're indifferent to or rejecting but recognizing it is it is what it is loss of the loved is like this not getting what i want is like this and you, then you can uh, observe it as a changing, as for what it is, as a sankara rather than as, as my, my problem. So I offer this for your reflection.